hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inspired word from the New Testament scriptures this Lord's Day as well. text for my sermon today is from 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. You may turn there and follow along. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. The impassioned command of the Lord Jesus to his disciples that they manifest a mutual love one for another was repeated several times before his death. This commandment he called a new commandment. The Lord Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. Dear ones, it was Christ's dying testimony for his church that they bear witness to their being Christians by their mutual communion in love. Even the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 26, section 1, emphasizes this spiritual bond of love that exists between those who are united to Christ. When it says, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. Now notice. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. This communion in mutual love was not intended to be some mere invisible, intangible spiritual platitude that manifests itself in mere words, but rather it was intended by the Lord Jesus Christ to be manifested not only in our words, but also in our earnest prayers, in our doctrine and in our preaching. And in our acts of mercy, the Apostle John makes love as concrete as James makes faith. You remember James declares concerning faith without faith without works is dead. You must evidence your faith by your works. And likewise, the Apostle John declares the Christian must have a visible love, not simply some speech about love, not simply in his heart a love for the saints, but he must also have a visible love when he says in 1 John 3:17, But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother hath need, 
and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? See, John says, in effect, let's stop merely talking about love and begin demonstrating love. Mere talk is cheap, isn't it? Whether it's your talk, my talk, or any other Christian's talk, mere talk is very, very cheap and easy, very comfortable. Doesn't exact a whole lot from us, simply talking about love. You know, today, there's a lot of talk about Christian love and the need for unity amongst professing Christians. Whether this talk be found in various churches or so-called marches for Jesus or organizations like Promise Keepers, much talk about love and unity. But I'm afraid that the talk of love and unity often belies a contradiction in the business-as-usual mentality of these same groups when these Christian love-ins or these unity orgies are all over. For when they leave these rallies, they return to hundreds of different churches that contradict one another in doctrine, worship, and government. Dear ones, let's be absolutely clear about the love of which Christ speaks in John 17. A love which would bind Christians together as one. And by that oneness, Jesus says, notice what he says in John 17, 21. By that oneness, by the love that the world sees, not simply hears about, but sees the world may believe that thou hast sent me, that that oneness and love would drive the world to believe that the Father has sent the Son into the world. Can we honestly believe that this Christian oneness, which would drive the world to believe in Christ, is limited only to a spiritual or mystical unity or merely a hug or verbal expression while Christ is rent into literally hundreds of pieces in hundreds of different churches that profess diametrically opposed doctrines and practices of worship? Beloved, although it is true that there exists between all true saints a spiritual union and communion in love, how will a mere spiritual reality that is not evidenced in Christ's church worldwide, his church visible, how will it compel the world to believe that God has sent his own expression of love Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. I submit to you today, dear ones, it will not, it will not believe, the world will not believe apart from a covenanted unity and uniformity in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline within the church of Jesus Christ. A covenanted uniformity like that of the Solemn League and Covenant, which bound the churches of Scotland, Ireland and England together and was in the process of binding all the reformed churches throughout the world together. in one doctrine, one worship, one, do uh, one government and one discipline. And this is what we need today. If we are to see biblical love and unity evidenced within the church of Jesus Christ, the idea that churches are manifesting the love and unity of Christ, of which he spoke himself in John 17, while rending his body into hundreds of dissociated pieces, is bordering on blasphemy. It is in effect to say 
that the unity after which the church is to be patterned and modeled, which is the unity that exists between the father and the son. You see, that's the unity after which the church is to be modeled, the unity between the father and the son. To say that it's okay to have all of these various views with regard to doctrine, worship, government, and discipline, and that we can still manifest that oneness is in effect to say we can have a spiritual unity like the father and son can have a spiritual unity, but we can believe entirely different things like the father and son believe entirely different things. See, that's bordering on blasphemy. We may do so ignorantly, but nevertheless, that is not characteristic of the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. There is agreement in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline between the Father and the Son. And so there should be. And so we should endeavor there to be within the church of Jesus Christ worldwide. The spiritual unity described by Christ in John 17 is one that is manifested in all being sanctified in the truth. That is, in all being in agreement, not disagreement about the truth. In John 17, verse 17, and in verse 19, notice the words of the Lord, the emphasis upon the truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. And this is indeed the precise same view of unity professed by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ as they write in their New Testament letters. For we find the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, emphasizing the exact same thing about what true unity is within the church. When he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. No divisions, but be of the same mind and of the same judgment. Certainly that has reference to what we believe and how we worship the living God. And so that for which we earnestly pray, dear ones, is not a multiformity of doctrine within churches, not a multiformity of worship or government, but we pray for a healing of the many wounds and the divisions that exist in the body the visible body of Jesus Christ. And we pray for a uniformity of profession coming from all Christian churches. I ask, where in all of the scripture do we find that division as to doctrine and worship and disagreement as to doctrine and worship manifest biblical unity. Where is that taught? That that's a manifestation of biblical unity. Cite a passage, a verse. Amos 3.3 3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? Rhetorical question. No, they cannot unless they be agreed. Unless they have agreement in the direction to go, what to believe, how to worship the Lord God, how to govern his church, how to administer discipline, they cannot walk together. Thus, we do not promote division within the body of Christ. In all earnestness and sincerity, that division already does exist. We 
proclaim, we make clear that we hate and despise division within the body of Jesus Christ. We consider division within the body of Christ to be demonic and satanic. It is one of the deeds of the flesh. It is not one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. What we promote is not division, but what we promote is a uniformity of all Christian churches in love and in the truth, bound together by the Spirit and by a solemn covenant. Dear ones, listen closely. Such are true peacemakers and lovers of true peace who endeavor worldwide reconciliation amongst the church of Jesus Christ and who are cemented by solemn covenants to see this realized. Listen to the words of Calvin in a letter addressed to Cranmer concerning this very issue. He says, I wish it could be brought about that men of learning and dignity from the principal churches might have a meeting. And after a careful discussion of the several points of faith, might hand down to posterity the doctrine of the scripture, settled by their common judgment. But amongst the greatest evils of our age, this also is to be reckoned, that our churches are so distracted one from another that human society, that is fellowship, scarcely flourishes amongst us. Much less that holy communion of the members of Christ, which all profess in words and few sincerely cultivate in fact. Thus it happens that the body of the church by the dissipation of its members lies torn and mangled. As to myself, were I like to be of any service, I should not hesitate to cross the seas for that purpose. Now, when the object is to obtain such an agreement of learned men upon strict scriptural principles as may accomplish an union of churches in other respects widely asunder. I do not think it lawful for me to decline any labors or troubles. I submit, dear ones, this is the love and the oneness which will bring the world, yea, even Israel, to Jesus Christ in that prophesied time of millennial blessing when the name of the Lord will be one throughout all the earth. I ask you, is your love for your Christian brethren throughout the world manifested in such earnest prayers, weeping because the walls of Jerusalem are fallen and working toward a covenanted reformation in order that those walls might be restored? That's just the introduction. We begin with our very first point, which is to make a few preliminary remarks. As we turn our attention specifically to 1 John chapter 4, we arrive again at this, re, this recurring test of love as one of the three tests which John gives his readers whereby they may know that they have passed from death unto life. Let me emphasize again that these tests are not uh, our ground for our salvation. They are not the basis for our salvation. These tests as being Acts and deeds which we were cannot save us in and of themselves. They are the fruit of our salvation. They are not the basis of our salvation. Let us not get the cart before the horse. We are saved only 
by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. It is only his righteousness that God will receive as a basis for our salvation. Our righteousness, even the best we have to offer God, will not in any way bring us closer to God. It is only the righteousness of Christ. The three soul-searching questions that John would have these professing Christians ask themselves, and which he enumerates and re-enumerates throughout this book of 1 John, in order that they might be assured by the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit that they belong to him, are these, the three questions that John would have them, his readers, as well as us today to hear and to examine our lives with as well. First of all, do you love holiness? And is love for God's righteous commandments evidenced in your life? Second, do you love truth? And is love for Christ's doctrine, worship, and government evidenced in your life? And third, do you love the brethren and is love for the Lord's people evidenced in your life? All Christians indeed will evidence love in their life in these three areas, but to varying degrees because sanctification in the life of Christians is not the same. But all will evidence love in these three areas, holiness, truth, and for the brethren. However, let me state this before we move on. Where there is no evidence of this fruit, there should be a legitimate concern on the part of any who cares about his or her eternal soul. Do not pass over these three tests glibly or quickly. Examine yourselves. Rejoice in the evidence and in the fruit that Christ has produced. But if there is no evidence, mourn and weep. Cry out to God that he would demonstrate his mercy unto you and that he would evidence the fruit of the Spirit in your life. In our text this Lord's Day, we will be focusing our attention upon the inspired imperative to love one another in 1 John 4, 7 and how that command specifically relates to Christian unity. And so my second main point today, the command to love. 1 John 4, 7. I read again for you. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. This is now the third time that John has placed before our eyes the test of love for the brethren as a specific identifying characteristic of a Christian. Remember what the Apostle Paul said concerning the superiority of love, superior to all spiritual gifts, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Listen closely to what the Apostle said about the superiority of love. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me 
nothing. For you see, dear ones, love for God and love for others should be our motive in all our acts of worship and, and in all our acts of service. Otherwise, all those acts of worship and service are nothing to God and they profit nothing. We can't bring before God mere empty forms, no matter how right those forms are, if there is no love for God. It profits nothing. But before we leave 1 Corinthians 13, carefully meditate upon the divine description of love that's found in verses 4 through 7. And I would encourage you to use this as a checklist in order to evaluate how tangible, how visible is your love in your own home. With fellow Christians in this church, with fellow, with fellow Christians outside of this church, how tangible and visible is your love? And if you really want to make it very personal... I found an excellent way to do that is simply instead of where the word love or charity appears, put your own name there. First of all, as we look at verses four through seven, love suffereth long. That is, love is patient rather than demanding results immediately. Love is patient. Love even recognizes, as Jesus saw in his disciples, that they were not able to bear certain things at that particular point in time. But he loved them to the end. Secondly, love is kind. That is, love is gentle rather than harsh. Thirdly, love envieth not. Love, dear ones, is content with what God has given and is ready to give what it has to those in need rather than being greedy and ready to cling to what it has. Fourthly, love vaunteth not itself. Love, dear ones, is not given to vanity or in moderation, in speech, behavior, or fashion. But love, dear ones, is moderate, temperate, and modest in all things. It avoids these extremes in speech, in its conduct, in its fashion, in what is worn. It avoids all of those extremes. It doesn't draw attention to itself. Fifthly, love is not puffed up. Dear ones, love is humble, not proud, not conceited, not arrogant about what it knows, what it understands, what one's IQ is. Love does not Again, draw attention to itself by what it says. Love does not have to be the center of attention. Sixthly, love doth not behave itself unseemly or uncomely. This is simply that love behaves itself in an honorable manner. When in public, it doesn't embarrass other people. When in public, it's not rude. It's not demeaning. It acts appropriately and honorably. Seven. Love seeketh not her own. That's because love is a servant. Love gives and gives and gives to others rather than serving oneself. Love is primarily concerned with serving others. 
Eighthly, love is not easily provoked. Love, dear ones, has a long fuse, not a short fuse with others. It doesn't have a quick temper. It's patient, long-suffering. Number nine, love thinketh no evil. You see, love always assumes the best about a brother rather than assuming the worst. He waits until there is evidence to the contrary and then almost against his own wishes and desires, he believes what he's forced to believe when the evidence is, pre is presented. He doesn't jump to conclusions about a brother. He assumes the best. Number 10, love rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. We could simply summarize that one by saying love loves what God loves and hates what God hates. That's true love. Eleven, love beareth all things. That is, love keeps the sins and weaknesses of others as private as possible. This idea of bearing all things is covering all things. Rather than delighting, as we said earlier, in making them as public as possible, only when it's necessary to make them public does love do so. But, and even in that case, love does so in order to restore the brother, not to embarrass the brother, not to trample down the brother, but to restore that brother back into fellowship. Twelve, love believeth all things. And similar to one we've already considered, this one says that love assumes that one is innocent until proven guilty by sufficient evidence. Number 13, love hopeth all things. You see, love always prays for and works toward reconciliation and always stands ready to forgive those who repent. He's always hoping and praying for that day of reconciliation, looking forward to striving, endeavoring, praying for that day of reconciliation when there's a division between a party. And lastly, love endureth all things. Love perseveres in doing what is right, whether it is easy, comfortable or pleasant. Love keeps on keeping on in doing what is right. That description of love, I believe, should have each of us on our knees daily seeking God's mercy and help in displaying love to our brethren and beginning in our own homes, displaying that kind of love. Or what hypocrites we are if we think that we can ex display that kind of love when we appear before one another on the Lord's Day, but can, can completely contradict that description and definition of love at home. God help us if we do so. God bring us to repentance if we're doing so. Helping us to be consistent with what true love is. Consider now, dear ones, four questions, and this will be the remainder of, of our sermon today, focusing on four questions as we seek to elaborate concerning the love that is to be manifested for the brethren and evidenced in Christian unity. Four questions. The first question is this. Is this love for the brethren optional? 
Maybe that's obvious. Maybe not. Observe from our text that John does not make love for fellow Christians optional in 1 John 4, 7. It is declared to be an apostolic command. Beloved, let us love one another. That is in the imperative in the Greek language. It's not optional. Note that that is not a command to simply love those Christians that agree with you in doctrine, worship and government. There is no such qualification placed upon that command. In other words, we have no excuse for loving the members of our congregation while despising Christians in other congregations. For you see, dear ones, we share a communion in love with all that profess the true religion. We share a mutual communion in love with all who profess the true religion. Now, certainly there is a nearer communion we share with those who are of the same doctrine, worship and government. But love for the brethren should compel us, dear ones, to pray for to testify against errors, to humbly call these brethren to repentance, to testify to the truth and work toward that day of reconciliation in the truth. Working toward a day of a covenanted reformation wherein all brethren in Christ will be united in the truth. And I would simply again note we do share a communion with all churches and with all professing believers in at least the fundamentals of the true religion. There is a communion there that we share one with the other. We do pray for a day when we will be able to share even greater communion in the truth with all Christians, professing Christians throughout the world. But we do minimally share communion in those fundamentals with all Christian churches and all Christians. Love for the brethren, dear ones, cannot be content with the fragmented status quo that is presently existing within the visible church. Nor will an unfeigned love for the brethren rest until the body of Christ upon the earth is healed of its many schisms and heresies by means of solemn national covenants and faithful national confessions employed by the Spirit of God to the healing of the nations. However, we are not to wait until there is such a covenanted uniformity in doctrine, worship, government and discipline before we begin fulfilling the command to love the brethren. It is, in fact, our present love. Hear me closely. It is, in fact, our present love for the brethren, which in part drives us to that goal. It is because we long to manifest that unity in the faith with those whom we love that we tirelessly and ceaselessly pursue reconciliation and the truth with all Christian brethren. A second question. Is this love for the brethren? And church unity to be at the expense of biblical truth as summarized in the Westminster Standards or other faithful reformed confessions and catechisms? God forbid. I emphasize that all our efforts in ecclesiastical reconciliation and union must be in the truth. For no church court or no church officer can ever legitimately promote a church union which would tolerate heresy or compromise and deny biblical truth that has been established, presented, 
formulated in faithful reformed confessions and catechisms like that of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. If ministers and officers of a church then would be faithful, they must be of the attitude of the Apostle Paul who declared, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. 2 Corinthians 13.8 Likewise, as we consider this question of unity at the expense of the truth, likewise carefully note how our covenanted forefathers, although loving the brethren and desiring unity with them, would not do so at the expense of biblical truth professed in our Reformed Confessions. Again, I read from Mr. Calvin in his commentary from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, where he emphasizes that truth is the bond that unites churches. He says, let us therefore bear in mind that in judging as to the servants of Christ, this mark must be kept in view. Whether or not they aim at peace and concord and by conducting themselves peaceably, avoid contentions to the utmost of their power, provided, listen closely, provided, however, we understand by this a peace of which the truth of God is the bond. For if we are called to contend against wicked doctrines, even though heaven and earth should come together, we must nevertheless persevere in the contest. We must indeed in the first place make it our aim that the truth of God may without contention maintain its ground. But if the wicked resist, we must set our face against them and have no fear lest the blame of the disturbances should be laid to our charge. And then this memorable note at the end of his quote, for accursed is that peace of which revolt from God is that bond. And blessed are those contentions by which it is necessary to maintain the kingdom of Christ. In like manner, do we hear the words of that eminent minister and Scottish commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, Alexander Henderson, as he pleads for a uniformity in the truth as well? He says, nothing so powerful to divide the hearts of people as division in religion. Nothing so strong to unite them as unity in religion. And the greater zeal in different religions, the greater division. But the more zeal in one religion, the more firm union. In the paradise of nature, the diversity of flowers and herbs is pleasant and useful. But in the paradise of the church, different and contrary religions are unpleasant and hurtful. It is therefore to be wished that there were one confession of faith, one form of catechism, one directory for all the parts of the public worship of God and for prayer, preaching, administration of sacraments, etc. And one form of church government in all the churches of his majesty's dominions. The third question, how shall we know that our love for the brethren is true and sincere? How do we evaluate whether the love we're expressing is genuine? Several responses to that question. First, when we love the brethren, for no other reason than that they are brethren in Jesus Christ. 
When we love them not so much for their gifts, when we love them not so much for their graces or even for the nearer communion which we share in doctrine, worship or government, but when we love them because they bear the image of Jesus Christ. You see, dear ones, we love those brethren even who have embraced error. In the same way, we love David who had embraced adultery. We love the brethren because the image of Christ is there. And we all fall in various ways. George Gillespie has noted, and I quote, It is true repentance when we sorrow for sin as sin. It is true love when we love the saints as saints. I mean, he goes on to say, I mean it is Christ Jesus himself whom we love in his saints. We don't love their errors. We don't love their sins. We love the Lord Jesus Christ in them. And the passage he uses as a proof is found in Colossians 1.4, where the Apostle Paul says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints. A second way in which we love the brethren, the second way in which we can know that our love is genuine for the brethren. When we love all the saints, regardless of their economic or social status. James 2.1. James says, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Do not cast an eye. A favorable eye upon one because of gifts and graces and therefore love that one. But another struggling, weak, professing Christian over here despise hate because he's not in agreement with you or he doesn't have the same social status or the same gifts and the same graces that the other one has. You love Christians as Christians, dear ones. Now, you may be nearer and you may have a closer communion in that love with those who share that one faith, that one doctrine, that one worship, government and discipline. But you love all Christians because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. The third way in which we know we love the brethren is when we love the brethren, not only with our words, but with our deeds as well. When pity and mercy issue forth in our actions in seeking to serve and help the brethren, where there is a legitimate need, we know we love genuinely the brethren. Love for the brethren of which John speaks and of which the Lord Jesus Christ speaks is a love that involves sacrifice on our parts. Now, that's not a very popular word in our modern society. Sacrifice. People want to run and hide when you talk about sacrifice. Inconvenience. Going the extra mile. Putting yourself out in any way. If love for the brethren, dear ones, never compels you to go that extra mile, if love for the brethren never compels you to inconvenience yourself in any way, or even to risk your own comfort, then you do not yet know what it is to love the brethren. How will you possibly lay down your life for the brethren? If you cannot sacrifice a little time, a little of your ability, a little of your resources now when you have so much 
to offer. And fourthly, with regard to this question, how do we know our love for the brethren is genuine? When we are broken over the sins and errors of our brethren, when our hearts are breaking and we sincerely cry out to God for their reconciliation in the truth, when we move beyond the attitude of either being resentful and bitter or taking a very neutral type of position and move to a position where we are broken in our hearts for the brethren who err, who have gone astray, then we know we love the brethren and have a genuine love for the brethren. When we can cry out in the words of David in Psalm 137, verses 5 and 6, If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy, what are you willing to sacrifice for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? The last question. Question number four. What should we do when we are falsely accused and misrepresented as being schismatics who have divided the body of Christ by our promotion of a covenanted reformation? What should we do? What should be our response and our attitude? Dear ones, we will humbly acknowledge our own sin in contributing to this sad, sinful and deplorable state of affairs. We have contributed to it in the past. We have aided and abetted division within the church of Jesus Christ by our past doctrines, our past practices. But we earnestly believe that what we are now promoting is the only biblical means of rectifying the present divisions that exist within the body of Jesus Christ. You see, reformation of national religion, as we search the scriptures, was preceded by a national covenant. Think of the various kings. Think of the Reformation after the, the people of God had fallen away from the truth into idolatry, into various practices, immorality. It was by means of a national covenant that God brought about a national reformation. Whether it would be under King Asa or Jehoshaphat or Josiah or under Ezra, Nehemiah. God wrought reformation at the national level through national covenanting. What we promote, beloved, is firmly anchored in God's word and was historically practiced as well by our Reformed and Presbyterian forefathers of the first and second reformations, a covenanted reformation. That is a national reformation of biblical doctrine, worship, government, and discipline held and bound together by a firm and solemn covenant. I submit to you that the divisions and fragmenting of Reformed and Presbyterian churches is not due to what we are presently doing. Rather, it is due to what we are seeking by God's grace to undo. And what we're seeking to undo is years and years of national, ecclesiastical and individual covenant breaking of which we ourselves in the past have been a part. In falling away from the biblical doctrine, worship and government that's summarized in the Westminster Confession of Faith in the catechisms, in the Solemn League and Covenant, in the Directory for Public Worship, in the form of Presbyterial Church Government, in the Directory for Family Worship. 
fact, it was always the case, dear ones, that when God raised up a prophet to call his people back to their covenant obligations, that he was accused of being a troublemaker, a conspirator, or a schismatic. Let us not think that we're undergoing some kind of unique trial and tribulation. Doesn't the Lord tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that we're not to consider any trial or temptation to be unique to ourselves? Don't consider that you're the only one who's passed through this. Don't take it so personally. We are to be a lion in the cause of God, but a lamb in our own cause as we present this information. I recall that Ahab said the same thing about Elijah. Art thou he that troubleth Israel? To which Elijah replied, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. No, we are not the first and we will not be the last to be falsely charged with causing division in the body of Christ because we desire a covenanted reformation and a covenanted uniformity. Listen to the words of one from the Second Reformation who was so accused. We pray for the coming of his kingdom and praise him that the number of those that seek the Lord in Scotland are not diminished that grow even under evil shepherds and lazy feeders, which is the lily among the thorns. Though we go, now he begins to say what names he and others like him have been accused of. Though we go by the name of protesters, separatists, hypocrites, unpeaceable, implacable spirits, are made as the filth of the earth and the offscourings of all things, yea, troubled on every side. Notice the places that he says that we are troubled, where they are spoken against. In the streets, pulpits, in divers synods, presbyteries, etc., more than under prelacy yet not distressed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. Words of that eminent Scottish divine, godly and learned Mr. Samuel Rutherford. Thus, in conclusion, dear ones, we fulfill the command of Christ in part to love the brethren when we earnestly desire, diligently endeavor, weep for and cry out to God for the peace of Jerusalem, the peace of his church. God grant our prayer that those who profess Christ might evidence their love for one another, not in meaningless unity rallies, but in deed, that is, in acts of mercy, and in truth, that is, in covenanted uniformity, in doctrine, worship, and government. Then will be realized, dear ones, the word of the Lord as found in Zechariah 4.9, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. And until that day dawns, the Apostle Paul gives us our marching orders when he declares in Philippians 3.16, Nevertheless, we have, nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule let us mind the same thing. Please stand with me in prayer. O God of our fathers, 
Thou art the truth. Thy Son is the way, the truth, and the life. Thy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. There can come from thee no lie, no error, no heresy. O Father, though we are weak, though we are ignorant, though we, Lord, are inclined to our own ways, have mercy upon us and cause us, Father, to seek thee, to obey thee, to hunger and thirst for thy truth and righteousness. O Father, cause us to, to see how even our forefathers in Scotland were not willing to budge from the truth. Those righteous and learned and godly forebears of ours who were willing to suffer death for a covenanted reformation, who spilt their blood and whose blood became the seed which continued this reformation in the hearts of thy people throughout years, even when there was no visible manifestation of it in the, in the government or in the church, but who continued to cry out to thee that thou would bring forth a reformation, a covenanted reformation in doctrine and worship and government. O Lord, we are their descendants. We are their posterity. Our Father, we stand before thee and pledge before thee that we, by thy grace, will continue that fight. That we will continue that struggle, whatever it takes. Whether we must shed our own blood, we will continue to defend the crowned rights of the Lord Jesus Christ in the state and in the church. And we will fight by thy grace for a covenanted reformation. And we will do so because we love the brethren, because we desire to be in one doctrine, worship and government. O Lord, our God, we do pray that thou would usher in such a time that thou would send forth thy spirit and use even this small remnant of thy people. Help us, Father. Let us not be arrogant or proud. Let us not trust in any resource we have, but let us see that the eternal God is our refuge and our strength. He is our hope. We ask, Lord, that thou would, would send forth thy word in its power to change and to transform the lives of thy people and to help people to see that this is biblical unity. Not all of the counterfeits and the facades that we see so often practiced, the words that are simply uttered. This is the unity for which Jesus Christ prayed. We ask, Lord, that thou would help us to endeavor it, that it might be realized in thy time. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada 
T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.